Fed Square's Anything But Square podcast was created, recorded and edited on the stolen lands of the Bunurong and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We acknowledge and pay our respects to the traditional custodians and their ancestors of the lands and waters across Australia where our content reaches and on which Fed Square's partner organisations stand. Sovereignty was never ceded. My name is Sarah Gasali and I am joined by Australian Green Senator for Victoria, Lydia Thorpe. Lydia, it's so great to have you on the line with me today. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm honoured to um, have a yarn with you. I think, yeah, it's a really important conversation we need to be having. I totally agree, yes. Um, I think we'll just get right into it. So I'll just get you to cast your mind back to when you were younger. Did you always see yourself becoming a member of parliament? Not at all. Not at all. Uh, I grew up in the struggle. Uh, I watched my family and my community constantly fighting the system and trying to navigate a system that, that has never worked for us. As a young kid growing up in community and going to valleys very early and seeing the oppression of what this system does to our people all my life has shaped who I am today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what I've taken into this parliament is, is no different to what I've been fighting for all my life and what my family and communities have been fighting for all their life. So to be given this opportunity... Uh, at this time in um, 2021, you know, over 200 years of colonisation, we know that it's overdue, but it's certainly a voice that is missing in there. And not in my wildest dreams did I think I'd be a politician. I think politicians are overrated. Even as a politician, I think that the privilege that is afforded to politicians is over the top. They don't deserve these privileges, they don't deserve uh, to have the power that they have because most of these politicians have no idea what it's like to struggle in this country and, you know, a lot of them come from very privileged positions. Mm. So it's good to have someone that lived the struggle and, and grown up in community to take that voice there. And I think we definitely recognise that with the work and the advocacy and the types of policies that you push for in Parliament as well. Can you tell us about the time you were sworn in as the first Aboriginal Victorian Senator? How would you describe that moment? I suppose it was a difficult moment leading up to that uh, in terms of making the decision first and foremost to join the colonial project in its colonial institution. Mm. So it's not something that I took lightly and it's something that I took to my family and to my people to seek their support and their guidance about uh, going into this space. And there was not much negativity at all when I raised this with my family and, and people. Uh, they were very supportive of me doing what I was doing and they're still very supportive of me doing what I'm doing. So, you know, going into these places, knowing that you've got the support of your people makes a huge difference. Mm. You know, I was honoured to be the first Aboriginal woman in the Victorian Parliament, but at the same time, look how long it took them. Uh, mm. And, you know, I was only there for 12 months 
I made as much noise as I possibly could to bring a lot of issues to the forefront, like, you know, reparations for our stolen gen or part of the treaty legislation. Uh, I made everyone stand up for the acknowledgement of the country because there was absolutely no respect for that prior to me going in. So I was able to make a few changes in the short time I was there, including renters' rights. It just goes to show that we can make a difference. One person can make a difference. I think a lot of communities were inspired by that moment, um, but the fact that it took so long to happen, like you said, is uh, disappointing, really. As a member of parliament, what does day-to-day work look like for you? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, something that changes every day. I mm. mean, when parliament's sitting, it's basically looking at the legislation and what's coming into the Senate, what I'll need to what fits into my portfolio uh, and then when Parliament's not sitting or I have a number of committees that I sit on, like the Human Rights Committee, sit on an inquiry, which is a Jukan Board inquiry around cultural heritage and the protection of our sacred sites nationally. And then you have, you know, community uh, expectations and community reaching out, which has been quite overwhelming. I've had people from around the country reaching out for help and and that can become quite disheartening because of the volume of people that need help. Mm. But, you know, I've employed a, an Aboriginal person to be able to work with communities that are reaching out. So things change all the time in, in politics and we have to do what we can to meet the demand but at the same time ensure that we are irrelevant in the national discussion. In your opinion, how can non-Aboriginal people engage in more effective ways of allyship? This question gets asked a lot. I think that the best answer I've heard to this is that allies can use their influence and their privilege to help break this system that has oppressed us for so long. Uh, So whatever area of influence our allies have, it's what you can do personally to break this system, to smash this system, to smash the patriarchy, you know, because patriarchy wouldn't be here if we weren't colonised. It comes with colonisation. It's another violence that gets perpetrated not only against uh, Aboriginal people in this country, but obviously women and anybody that's not part of the patriarchy. Mm. So uh, we need allies to decolonise the way that they think and the way that they act and to inform themselves and not expect Aboriginal people to educate you all the time Mm. and not expect to have Aboriginal people, you know, come and talk all the time. You've got to educate yourself and you also got to step back to give our voice that platform. So it means giving up something. It means giving up some of your privilege and and your platform, but also educating yourself and helping to destruct this system that is hurting so many people in this country. And in your opinion, how can allies celebrate Nidoc Week and Aboriginal culture without appropriating it? Very good question. I think people need to understand 
the beginning of NAIDOC Week. NAIDOC Week stands for the National Aboriginal and Islander Day of Service Committee. And NAIDOC was born out of a day of protest. It was born on the 26th of January in 1938, where William Cooper and other elders resisted colonisation and called for a day of mourning on the 26th of January. So NAIDOC was born out of just that. And it's been corporatised. It's been, you know, I would say it's also been assimilated along the way and the flavour of NAIDOC has changed into celebration and culture and, you know, which is great, but we have to not ever forget its beginnings. Mm. That's the story that needs to be told. It's about bringing back the meaning of it so that we can still continue to call for that day of mourning, which ultimately could turn into a day of healing because on the 26th of January we hold the day of mourning, we have the dawn service, allies could be talking about getting more people to that day of mourning and getting more people to call for one. Do you often find that NIDOC week and things like maybe Refugee Week, NIDOC Week, a little bit tokenistic because I think we see a lot of organisations attempt to show solidarity, but as soon as it hits, like, you know, Sunday 11.59pm, it all goes back to normal. How can we make this, an, you know, an ongoing conversation, not just for one week? Yeah, that's part of the problem, hey. It, you know, there's a great episode of Black Comedy that, talked about NAIDOC week and there's a skit where a local council goes looking for Aboriginal people because NAIDOC week is coming and the local mayor holds a town hall <laughs> meeting and says, we need to find the, an Aborigine because NAIDOC week's coming. And so they go out and they chain up this black man and black woman and they put them on a truck and they wheel them down the main street and they say, we found our Aborigines for NAIDOC week. And then they sit them on this stage and they celebrate NAIDOC week and it's done. It makes so much sense, right? Mm -hmm. So it is tokenistic and we need to keep this on the agenda 365 days a year. We need a day of mourning. We need a day of healing. And we need a day of reckoning in this country. And that's what allies can continue to call for. And I think this, this is where it also incorporates treaty because treaty is about peace. Treaty is about unity. Treaty is about having a new nation. We can create a new nation and get rid of that old constitution that is so racist and so sexist and does not include human rights in this country mm. uh, where we're treating refugees like criminals. NAIDOC Week is an opportunity to start the conversation, but that doesn't mean that we just do that every July. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like you, I'm looking for more ways to make things like Refugee Week less tokenistic and more formed by the correct people for everyone and to extend that conversation a year long. Um, I think it's so important. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, again, we need our allies stand up. You know, we've got the pay the rent concept happening where that fund assists grassroots, helping families who've been affected by death in custody, helping grandmothers who are fighting for their children that have been removed, mm. and it's assisting funerals where people just can't afford to pay the exorbitant fees. Mm. And how do you think 
COVID-19 specifically has impacted the advocacy space for reconciliation and for pushing for a treaty. Do you think it's been strengthened by allowing everyone to immerse in social media and grow the advocacy platform there? I think it's an opportunity. A lot of our people are on social media and because of the corporatization of a lot of our organisations, there's not a lot of opportunity for community to come together anymore. We don't have community meetings anymore. We don't have community gatherings anymore. So social media is our way to communicate. This information being accessible to everybody allows for people to be more informed about their decision-making. While COVID has been difficult for so many people and it is a horrible pandemic, my followers are used to dealing with pandemics, you know, we've survived so much. Mm. Reconciliation, to me, is something that we also need to think about more deeply because reconciliation is about two parties that have wronged one another. And I still can't find where Aboriginal people have wronged the coloniser. So reconciliation may not be the right word to be using uh, because we haven't done anything wrong. These followers invaded us. We didn't invade them. We mm. didn't bring harm to them. They brought harm to us. So I think treaty is the ultimate way to go forward now. The reconciliation process is 20 years old, and the ultimate outcome was that we engage in a treaty process. It is now time to do that, and we can't be distracted by voices to parliament or voices to government or constitutional reform because we have to settle the, this country first and foremost and we can only do that via a treaty. We can't do that by going into the colonizers' constitution to have some advisory group set up. And when you're fighting for a treaty, especially in the online space, were there any challenges that you've faced and how do you go about combating them? Only negative response I've had, I suppose. The Liberals aren't into treaty. They don't believe that we are sovereign. But if they're not in government, then, you know, we've got a better chance. We have the people who support constitutional recognition, like the Labor government, and they're listening to the conservatives to, to come to that position because, after all, constitutional recognition is not something new. It's something... You know, Noel Pearson, people like him have been pushing for quite some time. Treaty is something that our old people have been fighting for for decades and decades. It is a question of sovereignty. So there are Aboriginal people that question treaty, and rightfully so, because we don't want to give up our sovereign status. We don't have to as part of a treaty. So that's the negotiation we have to have with the so-called, you know, other sovereigns. It's the only way we're going to be able to address the many injustices our people face in this country. Addressing those injustices, like you said, requires a lot of emotional labour, I can imagine. Being a politician, how do you maintain you know, a balance of work and also looking after your mental health to continue the fight? Uh, well, you just do your best. It's survival mode and I've been in survival mode since I was born. You know, my mum experienced family violence. I've seen it all my life. See my people die around me. I worked at the Aboriginal Funeral Service for seven years. 
So I've even buried a lot of my people. An elder was asked this same question, beautiful elder from Fitzroy River, the Kimberley. She answered it perfectly, and that was that we die fighting. We're standing up. We're still standing, and that's how we we die as Aboriginal people in this country. We die fighting. That's probably how I'll end up. That's how all my old people have ended up. You know, they never gave in to the fight. You just do what you can do to survive. Um, my country keeps me strong. My children keep me strong. And my ancestors keep me strong. I maintain that connection to ensure my cultural integrity and my cultural strength is there to finish a fight. Or I don't think the fight will be finished anytime soon, but it certainly keeps me strong. Mm, Well, a lot of young people are going to take over that fight in the future. Would you have any advice for them about grappling, you know, with a similar sort of requirement of emotional labour? Yeah, absolutely. I suppose my first word of advice, and it's something that my my grandmother's always instilled in me, and that is that you never forget where you come from. You never forget our struggle. And you never forget our fight. Keeping that in mind, it's always important to maintain your connection to country. And that doesn't mean it has to be your traditional country. But, you know, you need an area where you can go and be on country, get permission to be on that country or acknowledge that you're on someone else's country. Enjoy your natural surroundings and have good people around you. And do take the time for self-care because it is very important. And everyone does that in their own different way. The struggle is a long struggle and the fight a long fight. So you've got to be sure that you're there for the long haul and that you don't burn out too quickly. You know, you can't get a million things done at once. As much as you want to solve all the problems in the world, it's about maintaining a steady, strong, committed fight and being part of this bigger movement that I think is there already, we're growing and we're going to be absolutely unstoppable and the young people coming through today gives me hope and it gives my old people hope because it's a new generation and it's a generation where you have to enrol to vote. You know, a million people didn't vote at the last election and it could have changed the outcome and that mainly young people did not vote. Sad as it is to enrol to vote and enrol to be part of the colonial project, we can change this nation through your vote. Not just about enrolling to vote, it's also about considering to run as a candidate. Don't think that you have to have some privileged upbringing. Don't think that you have to go to university. Don't think that you are not good enough because... I dropped out at 14. I went in there with no privilege. I went in there with my own voice that was supported by my people and guided by my people, and that was based on my lived experience. So please consider also running, particularly if you're a woman, particularly if you are a person of colour, because we can be that change. And we can change what that parliament looks like. And we can take over here. This is the power we have at the tips of our fingers. Be part of the change.
Honestly, it's a pleasure to hear you talk and I can't wait to release this interview. So everybody, especially young people, I think it's important that we hear and we see someone that represents us to feel like we have a place um, and a voice in Parliament. It's very, very important because when I was your age, I didn't think I would ever have a place. I didn't even think about it. But believe me, there are smarter young people out there than me that could quite easily do this job. So don't ever think it's insurmountable and there is a lot of support out there for, for that to happen. I just wanted to say a really big thank you uh, to you, Lydia, for taking the time out of your day to have a chat with me. I'm incredibly inspired by the bravery and the the power that you hold and the space that you make in Parliament. Um, I think it's extremely significant for this fight, and it's a privilege to be able to chat to you about it. Sarah, it's been equally a privilege, and I'm inspired by you and your work. And I look forward to bringing a whole lot of young people along on our journey, hey? So thank you.